every year, Americans spend about $55 billion on weddings. Right? The latest information I found says that the average amount spent on a wedding in the USA is about $25,000. Now, in our state of Massachusetts, it's about $44,000. And for some, that sounds like a lot, but for also some, maybe that doesn't even sound like enough, right? The wedding industry itself is said to have grown dramatically after World War II when disposable income became more common and advertisers ramped up uh, their targeting uh, into the wedding industry. And this vision of that perfect day, the wedding becoming this perfect day, has captivated the hearts of Americans since. So more recently, we have shows about only weddings, right? Like Say Yes to the Dress or Bridezillas or even one called Married at First Sight, right? We want that day to be perfect. We love weddings. And a lot of the time, there's a perception that if we can get that day perfect, if we could just get that day like, like it is in the Disney movies, right? If we can get it like it is in romantic comedies, that we'll live happily ever after, just like the people in the movies that we love. Now, it turns out that hinging so much on one day can result in great stress and even greater disappointment. So weddings, they consistently rate as one of the most stressful events in a person's life, right up there with divorce, major injury, and even death. Is that surprising to anybody? <laughs> According to many writers, this uh, is especially for women, right? Not to knock women because they're actually the ones who are being targeted by these advertising geniuses, uh, and they face unfair pressure. But uh, some of this I actually read in an article in Washington Post, and the, the title of the article was, Did You Hate Your Wedding? Join the Club. Right? In that article, they quote a professor uh, who did her dissertation on bridal magazines, and she says, The pressure to be completely incandescently happy on your wedding day can make even the best wedding hard to enjoy. When she was writing her dissertation on bridal magazines, she would go through each bridal magazine. She said the word perfect cropped up in every single issue, right? For decades, she said, women, and only very rarely men, have been urged to aspire to the perfect wedding, the perfect dress, the perfect hair, the perfect cake, the perfect venue. This language, she said, is fueled by the multi-billion dollar wedding industry. Another woman in the article is quoted as having been depressed for months after her wedding, thinking about everything that went wrong. Now, in the same vein, an, in another article in Time magazine, this author contrasts uh, the way we go about weddings uh, with the way we think about a child coming. Right? She says, during pregnancy, we spend nine months preparing to be mothers and fathers, but we spend the special time leading up to our marriage acting like event planners rather than wives or husbands-to-be. And this is the part that, that the truth that she really nails down. A great party does not prepare you for a lifelong partnership. A great party does not prepare you for a lifelong partnership. So weddings can be great joy, and weddings can bring great disappointment. When you put a lot of planning into something and you're responsible for its success, it can be disheartening when something goes wrong, especially if it affects your guests, right? It can even be embarrassing. And if you think weddings today are over the top, 
then you should look into what a first century Jewish wedding was like. The celebration lasted for days. It included tons of people, tons of food, tons of wine. And so a problem is going to come up uh, in our passage today. You've already heard it. And it's going to be a catalyst for Jesus' first public sign. Now, the Apostle John in his gospel uses the word sign when talking about Jesus' miracles. And so we're, we're doing this whole new sermon series on John so that we can look at the signs of Jesus. The purpose of these is to reveal who Jesus is, right? We want to know who Jesus is and why he came. So today we're going to look at three things. This is kind of like these are your guideposts for this sermon, your roadmap. Today's uh, sign is going to be Jesus turning uh, water into wine, right? And, and we're going to look at Jesus' position we're going to look at Jesus's power, and we're going to look at Jesus's party. And I don't mean like political party. I mean like a celebration, right? His power, his position, his power, and his party. So let's get to it. Let's see what the Apostle John has to say about the position of Jesus. And so we're in John chapter 2, going from verse 1 through 11 today. Verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And so when it says on the third day, John's just saying it's three days from the last thing he talked about earlier in the book. He's taking us through a story, and he's, he's orienting us. And so Jesus is at this wedding in Galilee. In the last chapter, he just met some of his disciples and invited them to follow him. And now Jesus his mother, and his disciples are all invited to attend this wedding, right? The wedding was probably the wedding of a relative or a close friend, uh, which is why his mother, Mary, is probably concerned about how things go. She's probably involved in the organization of the event somehow. And when the wine ran out, it says in verse 3, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. And we just talked about wedding disappointments, right? At a seven-day wedding... Right? This would have been quite the disappointment and quite the embarrassment. So Jesus' mom comes to him. She presents the problem to him. Why? Right? Because she's expecting him to fix it. Right? That's why we bring problems to people. We bring problems to people we think can fix our problem. And there are a lot of theories of why she's coming to Jesus. Some think that... Uh, at this point in Jesus's life that she's a widow and she's gotten used to relying on him as her firstborn son. And so she comes to him uh, to solve her problem. Some say it's because she wants Jesus to do a miracle. That's what she has in mind. But no one's really sure. But what we do know is that she obviously cares about this embarrassment and she wants her son to do something about it. Right. So this has a lot to do with Jesus's position in his family. Right? It's not an uncommon mother-son dynamic, right? Listen to how Jesus responds to her, though. He says in verse 4, What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. And so now preachers and translators have tried to soften this response, to make it less rough around the edges, right? Some, some say that when he says woman, he means dear woman, uh, or that the Greek wording used in the original text was a common term of endearment, and that's not exactly the case. Uh, Jesus calling his mom woman can be a little jarring, right? Um, but I will say it's not the equivalent of the rudeness of calling your mom woman today. 
uh, but it's really not as soft as dear woman. So we really don't have the perfect translation, and that happens sometimes, to communicate uh, the heart of Jesus and what he's saying when he calls his mother woman. But that's not what a polite son calls his mom today, and that's really not what a polite son called his mom back then. So why is Jesus saying this? We have a couple things going on, right? Jesus is using less than familial language to address his mom, and he's asking why her concern should be his concern, because his hour hasn't come. So why is Jesus separating himself from Mary's concern and from his position as her son? See, Jesus has just begun his ministry, and the previous chapter in this book, John, he details uh, Jesus choosing his disciples. Uh, Jesus encounters John the Baptist, who's actually his cousin, and John tells all of his own followers, Jesus is actually greater than me, because John the Baptist had amassed all these followers that he was baptizing, and when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, Jesus is greater than me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then in just the, nec- just the next chapter, John the Baptist, who has become widely known for calling folks to prepare for Jesus, right? He publicly declares, he must increase and I must decrease. In other words, Jesus is it and I am not. I'm just pointing the way to him. So now similarly, Mary is having to come to terms with who Jesus really is. She comes as a mom to her son, and she gets a little bit of a wake-up call from Jesus, right? Jesus is saying, I'm not part of your agenda, right? I have my own agenda, and it's more, it's actually a more important agenda, right, than the wine at this party. Now, how do you think that felt for Mary, right? She obviously, she knew her son, her son was the son of God, like that, we know that, right? She knew he wasn't normal. She knew that his destiny superseded her plans. Yet she has to come to terms with the fact that he's the Lord, right? He's not being mean to her, not in the least. He's he's helping her to recalibrate her perspective of who her son is and what he came to do. So Jesus tells her, my hour has not yet come. And uh, it's important to know that whenever Jesus mentions his hour in the book of John, he's talking about the time of his death. He uses that term a few times. And so he knows he's headed to the cross. He knows that there's a specific time where that's going to happen, his hour. And one pastor says it well. He says, Mary is coming to Jesus saying they have no wine. And Jesus is answering her, it's not time for me to die. See, it seems like they're missing each other, right? But they're not. She's missing him, and he's teaching her. Jesus tends to answer simple questions with deep truths, right? And he starts talking to her about his death. And we're going to talk more about that uh, as time goes on. Uh, And sometimes we actually need this kind of wake-up call, don't we? Right? It's great to come to Jesus with all of our cares, right? But whose agenda are we prioritizing when we come to him? Right? We're called to come to him with what we need, but let's remember that we're not coming to a vending machine in the sky, right? right? The, we're coming to the Lord of all creation, right? the Lord of our very selves. This is the position of Jesus. Jesus' position is Lord. He is the Lord of all, right? He's the Lord even over his own mother. That must have been really difficult for her to, to process, Right? He must increase. We must decrease. 
And so how does Mary respond to Jesus when he does this? Right. First of all, Mary is a spiritual, God-honoring woman. She's pictured that way throughout all of Scripture. Right. Her responses to God in the Gospels are always reverent. So she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary accepts the call to recalibrate, and that's exactly what she does. She comes to Jesus as his mother. She's corrected by Jesus, and then she responds to him as a believer. And we're going to see that her faith is honored. So she still doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she's handed her concern over to him, and she trusts him. Right? If we don't come to Jesus as a believer, if we don't come to him in belief, we can't expect him to act. Right? Jesus is Lord and he's Savior. She's thinking about wine at this wedding, and he's thinking about our greater need. Right? And how soon he's going to have to die to meet it. He's thinking about his hour, right? So the position of Jesus is Lord. Now let's talk about the power of Jesus. And so Mary just told the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. What does he tell them to do? He says in verse 6, Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus says, fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter, and they did. Now, these six water jars were big, right? Think 20 to 30-gallon jugs of milk, right? And, and they were there for Jewish purification, and they were pretty tall, too, probably like about up to here. Uh, and the point of these jars was to allow guests to wash their hands, and they'd wash utensils in there, too. Uh, but it wasn't for the sake of getting germs off, like the way you or I would wash our hands now. This purification was to cleanse from sin. It was to purify things that had come into contact with impurity, uh, things that were considered unclean in a spiritual sense. And so the servants, they listen to Jesus. They fill these jars this would have been 120 to 180 gallons total, right? A lot of water. That's what would have fit in these six jars. So the filling of the jars of the water is kind of the easy command to obey, right? We can fill these with water, right? It's just us here. Jesus is here. We'll fill them with water. But the riskier command that Jesus gives is to draw it out and take it to the head waiter, so these servants are following Mary's lead. They're believing in Jesus, uh, but now they're being called to put that belief to the test, right? Put that on the line as they draw this out and they bring it to the head waiter, right? This is where belief transforms into obedience because to trust Jesus is to believe that what he's told you is actually good, right? To believe his word. Jesus says, take it to the head waiter, and they did. And so these servants are given a front row seat to the work of God just because they approached him in belief, but because their belief resulted in action too, right? And we can't forget the symbolism here, the jars of this water turned into wine where these jars were meant to hold water that was used to cleanse from sin. Right? Jesus' hour is approaching where he's going to be crucified and his blood is going to be poured out for all sins. In fact, that's exactly what he tells his disciples when he pours the wine at the Last Supper. We just took communion. Remember? The night of his crucifixion, he says that. So John is showing us Jesus' signs, these miracles that point to who he is, um, even within 
Even within the signs, there are these symbols that are important, right? The jars were symbols, right? The jars in the water. Now, before these servants, Jesus turns water into wine. That is what we call a miracle, right? And this isn't just some kind of magic trick, right? Jesus isn't, uh, doesn't have the power of a magician, right? At the opening of the Gospel of John, uh, the scripture says, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And so Jesus is the agent of creation, and his ability to create wine out of water isn't a sign that he's just exerting the power of God. It's a sign that he himself is God, right? Another fact about Jesus that John states in the beginning of his book, in the beginning, the word was God, right? But it's a truth that's displayed through this miracle, too. If we pick it back up in verse 9, it says, When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And so the head waiter doesn't even know where this came from, but the servants do, right? The servants know. See, when we believe and obey God, we get a front row seat to his work around us, right? When we pursue the opposite, we miss what he's doing. So following Jesus involves a lot that could make us look silly in the world, though, right? Yet if Jesus is your joy, right, you know to follow him means that you're going to increase joy in your life. And that to do your own thing and to ignore him means that you're going to miss out on that joy. Sometimes it looks silly to the world to spend your Sunday morning here, right? Why would you spend it here? When maybe you could be sleeping in on a rainy day or getting paid time and a half at another job or watching sports, right? It can seem foolish to the world when you say, you know what? I'm not going to lie on my taxes. I'm going to claim every dollar I make. That's a hard one, right? I know I'd probably get away with it, but I'm pursuing Jesus and I'm pursuing his joy. I don't need to steal my joy. Following Jesus means we don't need to steal our joy. It means it's been given to us by God, right? It's not a scarcity mentality. And it seems crazy to the folks around us to say, you know what? I'm walking in holiness in my relationships. I'm going to strive to forgive those who have harmed me, to ask for forgiveness to, from those I've harmed. I'm, I'm going to commit to love my wife or my husband at home. I don't need to flirt and have an office wife or an office husband. Or I'm waiting until I'm married to sleep with my significant other because God has a design for that. And his word calls me to it, right? And it's for my joy. And I'm walking in wisdom to make sure that I can keep that a reality. So maybe even dating looks a little different for me than it does for you. Or I'm careful what I look at on the Internet. I'm careful about what shows I watch. I run from things like pornography because the Bible says that all humans are created in the image of God and that to degrade God's image is to degrade God himself. Right, and that it naturally pulls me away from the joy of my Savior, the joy of my Creator. And I know a lot of these topics are, have been hobby horses for preachers, and they just like, you know, rail on this over and over again. That's not what we do here, right? But all sin is wicked. 
And these are just some areas that we're often drawn to uh, and, and care less about because the fact is people around us in the world are not going to call us to account in these areas. These are all normative in our culture. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't believe in him, there's no way that you could understand why someone would choose these paths, why someone would choose these paths when, when sometimes they appear unnecessarily difficult, right? Or delayed in gratification. Because if you don't know Jesus, then you're living in a scarcity mentality, not in an abundance, right? Not in a mentality of abundance, And if I do know Jesus, right, and I find myself moving in the opposite of his direction, which happens, right, I know that I've fallen back into a mentality of spiritual scarcity. I'm believing that I need to steal my joy. I need to get it now when he's waiting for me, right, waiting for me, freely willing to give joy, right? In that case, the Bible calls us to repent, And that's a biblical word that just means to change your mind, right? It's a mind change that leads to a, it's a heart change that leads to a mind change that leads to a life change, right? Change your heart so that you can pursue him and leave behind destructive pursuits. He has greater joy for us, right? Jesus didn't just make a couple glasses of wine. When his mom said they were out of wine, he didn't say, tell me how many glasses you need. Right? He filled tubs with it. There is no lack with Jesus. His abundance is beyond our comprehension. And who gets to see this crazy miracle before their very eyes? Right? It's the servants. Right? This is Jesus' first sign, John said, and it's done at a family wedding, and, and the servants get a front row seat. And, and they're the only ones besides the disciples who know what Jesus has actually done. Even the head waiter doesn't know what Jesus has done. I'm sure his mom knows what he's done. Jesus' position is Lord, and his power is the power of God. And his power is strong enough to take care of our lack. Right? Do you believe that the power of God is strong enough to take care of what you lack? Right? And it's amazing. In this first sign, in this first miracle, Jesus uses his power not in the way we typically think of it, right? Remember his miracles like healing the sick, feeding the hungry, raising the dead, right? He doesn't, he's not doing that kind of miracle. He's keeping everyone's cup filled with wine, right? He's keeping the party alive. That's his first major sign is, is keeping a wedding going by refilling everybody's cup with wine. So we've talked about his position. We've talked about his power. Let's talk about his party, right? Jesus loves a party, and he's preparing a party. Let's get back into the text in verse 9. It says, when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the finest wine in the beginning of the wedding and then after people are drunk the inferior right but you have kept the fine wine until now jesus did this the first of his signs in cana of galilee he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him so jesus doesn't just bring the most wine right he brings the best wine quantity and quality 
right? This head waiter tastes the wine and he's compelled to go to the groom and he tells him, wow, like usually people get their guests a little tipsy and then they bring out the good wine when they can't tell, right? You know, use the expensive stuff first, then when people's taste buds are a little dull, you bring out like the cheap stuff, right? That's when they bring out the bottom shelf. And in this particular wedding, the groom also called the bridegroom, was the one responsible for the festivities. And so that's why the head waiter comes to him. And this is, um, yeah, this is probably like a practical idea even used today, right? Serve the uh, expensive stuff first, then the cheap stuff later when nobody can tell. But not only has Jesus saved this groom from the embarrassment of running out of wine, right? Jesus brings the finest wine. Right? He doesn't just fill the cup with, with bottom-shelf stuff. He brings the best wine. This is just who Jesus is. This is why I just said we don't lack quantity or quality with Jesus. He gives us the most, and he gives us the best. You want Jesus at your party, right? But more than that, you want to be at his party. And that's what this sign is actually pointing to. See, signs point to something. This one's pointing to, to revealing Jesus' glory, but it's also pointing to a greater party that Jesus is planning, right? This greater future feast of God's people uh, that had been looked forward to centuries before Jesus was even born, and that is people look forward to today. It's, again, that picture of commu communion where we look back on Jesus' death and we look forward to his coming again. The culmination of history, right? The return of Jesus described uh, as a wedding and a feast. That's how it's described in the Bible, a wedding and a feast. Now, this same author of the book we're reading today, the Apostle John, he's also the author of the book of Revelation. And he's given this glimpse into the future by Jesus in that book uh, and, and about this time when Jesus is going to come back and restore all things. And this is what he says. Then I heard something like a voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the church, has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's Jesus. He said to me, these words of God are true. John goes on to describe that feast and this marriage supper uh, that's to be, uh, this marriage supper that's to come and um, talks about how Jesus is coming back for his bride, right, for his church. And, and it's this time when God is going to dwell with humanity in peace forever. Right? This time when the eternal kingdom of God is marked by partying. It's marked by celebration. It's an eternal celebration. There's a greater wedding coming, right? One that really will satisfy our deepest longings. Like centuries before Jesus came, the prophet Isaiah said this about the time when Jesus comes to set things right. He says, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine. 
the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. And so Jesus' miracle is pointing to that day, right? This is what Jesus knows is ahead, and he chooses it to be his very first sign. And it's no wonder why when Mary comes to him earlier that, that he responds to her with, my hour has not yet come, why he responds to her in this almost melancholy way. See, Jesus wants this greater feast, this greater wedding that's to come. And I'm sure even as he started his ministry, this, this symbolism is standing out to him, right? Reminding him of all that. But he knows that just like the wine, right? Just like the wine, this greater wedding is going to come at cost to him. Right? See, this beautiful picture of dwelling with God or having our tears wiped away or of death shrouds being removed and thrown away or death being swallowed up by God, that doesn't happen unless Jesus' hour comes. Right? So while everyone's celebrating the delicious wine and the beauty of marriage, Jesus has to bear the cost, right? the cost that's to come. Jesus' work to have a wedding feast includes his death. Right, see, there's another cup mentioned later in the book of John, one that Jesus has to drink. On the night of his death, before his capture, Jesus is praying and sweating drops of blood, praying that the Father would take this cup away. But nonetheless, he drinks it, right? And it's the cup of God's wrath for sin, for our sin, Big stone jars filled with water were never going to be enough to remove our sin. We need something greater than water, someone who will go in our place. Right? So Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live. He died the death that we should have died. We call Jesus the Lamb of God because throughout Israel's history, there was always a sacrifice for sin. See, every year the priests would sacrifice a lamb for the sins of the people of God. They had to do it every single year until Jesus came, right? He is our once and for all sacrifice. He's our forgiveness. He's our reconciliation with God. He is our peace. He is our joy. And so to keep with the themes of this pas passage, uh, another pastor named Edmund Cloudy puts it this way. Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the cup of sorrow, so that today we can sit amidst our sorrows, sipping the cup of joy, of coming joy, right? So our cups can be filled with joy because he drank the cup of suffering that was meant for us. And this is why, this is why we can look forward to the greater wedding, right? To the greater wine, to the greater feast. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. These words of God are true. So Jesus is your invite, right? You're invited to believe in him, invited to receive joy, invited to receive a future that surpasses the glory and the perfection of any wedding day you can think of. 
Remember what uh, that article said, a great party does not prepare you for a lifelong relationship. But a lifelong relationship with Jesus prepares you for a great party. Right? Jesus' position is Lord. His power is God's. And his party is eternally joyful. 